Welcome to the Ralston College Podcast. I'm Stephen Blackwood. Today's episode probes some of the most fundamental questions that arise within human experience. Who am I? What does it mean to be me? Am I identical or discontinuous with my past and future selves? Such questions, which are also at the heart of our newly launched MA in the Humanities, are both perennial and profound. In this podcast, we'll explore some of the most challenging answers that were offered by one of the philosophical tradition's most brilliant and original thinkers, and we'll do so with the aid of an incomparable guide, Dr. Arif Ahmed. Dr. Arif Ahmed is a professor of philosophy at the University of Cambridge. He's also a fellow of Gonville and Keyes College and an authority on such major philosophical figures as Ludwig Wittgenstein. He's also an inspiring and courageous advocate for freedom of inquiry, that bedrock of the intellectual enterprise, and indeed of human life itself. We are proud to count him as a fellow of Ralston College. In this lecture, Professor Ahmed brings into view an immensely challenging and indeed disturbing aspect of David Hume's treatise on human nature. Hume was a crucial figure in the Scottish Enlightenment who made invaluable contributions to the tradition of British empiricism, which had emerged in the 17th century with Francis Bacon and John Locke. Hume brought both his skepticism and his curiosity to bear on basic assumptions concerning causality, religion, and even the existence of a stable, unified, continuous self. In a wide-ranging lecture which touches on contemporary moral issues and many strands of contemporary philosophical debates, Professor Ahmed offers a thorough assessment of Hume's unsettling analysis and does so with a view to what Hume might have to offer our own reflections on responsibility morality, and self-interest. I'm Stephen Blackwood. Thanks for listening. Welcome, everyone, to this lecture at, uh, in the Ralston College series. I'm Stephen Blackwood. I'm the president of Ralston College, and it is a great pleasure today to uh, continue this series and to welcome Dr. Arif Ahmed, albeit remotely, to his first lecture at Ralston College. Thank you all for joining us. I know we've got people tuning in uh, through all, uh, through, from all over the globe. Arif, thank you so much for uh, being here today. Thank you, Stephen. It's a pleasure to be here and a pleasure to see you as always. Well, uh, I'd like to uh, do my best to embarrass Dr. Uh, Arif Ahmed by uh, listing his uh, many accomplishments as we uh, just by way of an introduction to all of you. Dr. Ahmed is a professor of philosophy at the University of Cambridge. He is also a fellow since 2015 of Gonville and Keyes College. He studied mathematics at the University of Oxford and philosophy at Sussex and Cambridge. He writes mostly on decision theory, according to his biography, which he has uh, debated also publicly in very interesting contexts with people such as William Lane Craig, Richard Dawkins, Rowan Williams, Douglas Murray. Arif is an example of bringing the best of very rigorous, serious, uh, scholarly thinking into the public sphere. He has also written extensively on a number of other, uh, on a wide range of philosophical questions. He has written on uh, Wittgenstein. He has upcoming uh, books, uh, two with Cambridge 
uh, two with one with Harvard, rather one with Cambridge and one with Princeton, one entitled Four Modern Illusions. You may want to uh, look out for that. I have a feeling that uh, today Dr. Ahmed may be pushing hard in his argument to make us reconsider things that we assume to be simple facts. The historian of ideas Isaiah Berlin once said of the famous Scottish philosopher David Hume that no man has influenced the history of philosophy to a deeper or more disturbing degree. I hope that today's lecture will prove disturbing in all the best ways. I mean, you really can't be serious about thinking and not open to the adventure that it brings and which often rocks the very foundations of our assumptions. Just one more word or two about Dr. Ahmed. Uh, we are honored that he is a fellow of Ralston College. This is his first lecture for Ralston College. Uh, he's also preparing a, an online course for us on the philosopher Wittgenstein, which we look forward to sharing with you later in the year. And we very much hope he'll be able to come and lecture in the MA in Humanities program this coming year uh, in the 22-23 uh, academic year. Finally, and you can read all about that, by the way, of course, on the website, I should say that applications, we are going to begin reviewing applications on the 21st of this month in just a few days. So you've still got time if you're interested to apply for this absolutely extraordinary opportunity. Finally, let me say that Dr. Ahmed is a renowned defender of freedom of speech and freedom of thought, above all at the University of Cambridge where he teaches, but also beyond. He was just last year honored by the Queen as a member of the Order of the British Empire for services to education. What services, Dr. Ahmed, those indeed have been Thank you for continuing them here today. Stephen, thank you very much for that very kind introduction and for all your thoughtful words. I do want to say it's a tremendous honour for me to be here. I think Ralston College is a great enterprise and I know how much you've done for it and it's excellent that it's moving forward in the way that it is. It's an honour for me to be part of it, but independently of that, I wish you all the best for everything that you go on to do with Ralston College, which I'm sure will be great things. Now, Stephen has invited me here to talk today to you about the Scottish philosopher, David Hume, and I'll be talking about one particular section of his most famous work, which is the Treatise of Human Nature. The Treatise of Human Nature, which was published in the first half of the 18th century, is probably, I would say, the most important and certainly, I would say, the greatest work of philosophy that has been written in the English language and one of the greatest works of philosophy that has ever been written. I think as long as people have an interest in philosophy, which is to say as long as civilised human beings exist, people will be reading and wondering about this great work. Obviously, there's far too much in it for me to summarise very much of it today, but I do want to focus on one of the most interesting, and I think as Stephen rightly indicates, disturbing sections of it. And this is the chapter which was in the reading for this course, which is Book One, Part Four, section six. If you haven't read it, it's fine. I shall summarise the basic gist of it in a moment. Now, what I'll be talking about is not just what Hume is doing in that chapter, but also, and perhaps more importantly, the philosophical topic to which he's contributing. And I'll say something about the background of that topic, 
what it is, why it mattered to people in the past, and why it should matter to us now. Then I'll say something about Hume's own approach to it and what it is that Hume did, and perhaps also hope to give you a sense of what's so disturbing and revolutionary about it. Then I'll say something about you know, Hume's response to some of the disturbing discoveries, as he thought it was, that he'd made in that section of the treatise. Um, and I'll follow that up with a discussion of modern treatments of the subject and something about the relevance that it has for us today. So let me start, I guess, with the basic topic. The chapter is on personal identity, which is questions about really who you are and how long you're going to live. So there is a person you know, who, is, who is going to be alive in, let's say, 10 years time, and that's a person for whom you've got a special concern. That person is someone of all the, what, seven, eight billion people who are going to be alive in 10 years time. There's one person for whom you have a special kind of concern. That's the person who goes by your name, the person you would call you. And the basic question about personal identity is what is the relationship between you now and future you, and indeed between you now and, pa you now and past you, the person who went to school or who was, a, who was an infant 20 or 30 years ago, um, that makes you a single person over time, and also that makes you a single person at a moment. And we'll see that actually these are quite difficult questions to which nobody's got a definite answer quite yet. All right, so that's the basic topic about personal identity and the self. Um, and I'm going to say a bit about why it matters and why it's been thought to matter in the past. I guess there are four reasons, really, that I ought to highlight about why it's important. Um, one of them is ethical. Um, one of them is to do with prudence. And I've sort of talked about that just now for a minute. Um, one of them is to do with responsibility. And one of them is to do with uh, eschatology. The ethical reason is to do with the fact that who you are and who you are going to be in the future and what makes you a person in the first place and when you began to exist and when you stop existing have deep ethical significance and are at the heart of some of the most important and contested ethical questions today. So to give an example, if we think about, I mean, an example that I suppose is, is very much debated in the United States at the moment, if we think about when you start to exist, so when a person starts to exist, you might think that you start to exist when conception happens. You might think you start to exist when birth happens. You might think it happens at some point in between, or you might think it happens at some time, even after your birth. So at some point, there's a cell or a living cell or a fertilized egg. And then at some point, it starts being you. It starts being a person who is you. And that we normally think is the point at which it starts to have rights and the point where, for instance, the destruction of that object would be the destruction of something with rights. So now I guess you can see why it's such an important question, because in the United Kingdom, for instance, if you think about terminations and abortions, um, there are maybe something like, I don't know, more than 100,000 every year. And we need to ask the question seriously, at what point is it between the conception of a person and the birth of the person at which they actually become a person, because that will determine in these cases when we're actually terminating the life of a person and when we're merely, you know, stopping the existence of some cells that are not yet a person, not, not yet you. There's no question that it's alive from the moment of conception um, and cells are alive, but the question is when it becomes a person and when it starts to have rights. And clearly, if it starts to have rights at two weeks or like four weeks, when it becomes a person at that point, that's going to put a very different ethical bearing on the question of abortion from if it started to have rights after, let's say, 18 weeks or 24 weeks. Um, 
And that in turn would be relevant to the question of where the law ought to be drawing the line. So that in Britain, for instance, we draw it, I think, at 24 weeks. Other countries draw it much earlier or possibly, I don't know, much later. Um, but in Britain, it's, it's about 24 weeks, beyond which point you can't perform an abortion legally. Why is it there? What's the ethical status of its being there? And I want to emphasize that this is a question on which one could quite reasonably take either side of the question, even from a secular perspective. So you don't need religious questions to intrude into it to have ethical concerns about abortion. Those concerns will arise if you think there's a real question as to when the fetus starts having rights, that is, when the person comes into existence. And that's really a philosophical question that can be raised from a secular as well as from a religious perspective. So that's one of the reasons. Um, uh, still under the ethical heading, I suppose, you might say that even towards the end of life, if you think about what happens to a person when they lose their mental faculties, does that person continue to exist? So there are some views, and we'll be looking at those in a moment, where we would say that a person stops existing when their mental life ceases. According to that view, if your mental life shuts down, then you have no rights, it seems, over the person, the thing that continues to exist, the living animal that continues to exist, if your high mental faculty shut down. And therefore, any advanced directive by which you could say, for instance, to the doctors, you should shut down the life of that thing, should be invalid because you don't, although you have the right to dispose of your own self in the future, it seems wrong to say that you have the right to dispose of another creature in the future. Even if that creature isn't a human being, it might still nevertheless have rights. So again, it's hard to think of anything more important in a way, but there are these two desperately important ethical questions that turn, it seems, crucially on questions about a person, what makes something a person and how long a person exists for. So that's one of the four reasons why we care about what makes you you and what makes you continue to be you and when you started to exist. The second reason is to do with prudence. And this connects with the question that I raised at the very start, because, of course, there is a person who exists in the future over whom you have a special concern. And that person is called you or future you. And the question can certainly arise, what's so special about the relation that you have to that person that makes you much more concerned about them than you are about anyone else? So people do obviously to varying degrees have concern about their future selves, typically for human beings and indeed for some other animals. That concern diminishes as you go further and further into the future, but we do nevertheless care about, you know, you care more about you in 10 years time than you care, I would imagine, about almost anyone else in 10 years time. What is the relationship between you now that gives you that special concern for that person in 10 years time? It's easy to see how that has all kinds of implications. The rate at which that concern diminishes, for instance, probably has some relevance, though it doesn't completely determine things like the rate of interest, for instance. It may be relevant to things like behavior to do with self-discipline, addiction, and various other things. I'd be happy to talk about that later, but there are lots of interesting intersections between what you might think of as economic and psychological questions about the rate of concern, rate of diminution of your concern for the future and the sense in which you yourself can be said to exist over the future. The third sort of question um, in connection with which personal identity arises is a question about responsibility. Locke, in his famous discussion of this topic in the essay concerning human understanding, um, said that identity, the identity of a person, is what he calls a forensic notion. And forensic means to do with the allocation of responsibility. Because we do normally think that the person who is you and nobody else is the person who bears responsibility for the things that you have done. Um, you know, it may be that we live in an age now and human humanity certainly has gone through times where there's such a thing as collective responsibility and people who belong to a group might be held responsible in more or less diminished degree 
for the actions of other members in that group. But I believe that, generally speaking, a more civilised attitude is to hold the person responsible for things that they have done and not for the things that other people have done. And so, of course, the question of responsibility turns again, crucially, on the question of what makes you the same person over time. And if you think about some of the cases where this difficulty arises, you can see why we have notions like diminished responsibility. So if you think about, for instance, the well-known story about Jekyll and Hyde, this is, you probably know the story by, by Stevenson, where, you know, it's, it's Dr. Jekyll, who's a kind of mild-mannered fellow, you know, who drinks a potion, and then at night he becomes evil Mr. Hyde, who does all these terrible things, and then the next day he wakes up and he doesn't know anything about it. Is Jekyll the same person as Hyde? That's the question on which it turns whether we hold him responsible for the things that Mr. Hyde does. We also have notions of diminished responsibility when you act in sufficiently out of character in such a way that we think there's some kind of mental disorder going on, or you might be under the influence of drugs or alcohol. So these questions all connect with issues about whether it's the same person that's revealed by the actions. And therefore, we closely connect the question of personal responsibility to the question of personal identity. The fourth issue uh, in connection with which these topics have been, have been thought to raise concern, probably not so much now everywhere, but certainly it was the case in the 17th century, for instance, and before Thomas Aquinas has written about it, Hobbes has written about it as well, and I'm sure it was in Locke's thoughts, um, probably not in Hume's. And this is the question of what I call eschatology, which is really to do with the end of the world. In the year 4004 AD, or whenever it is that the world is going to end, uh, there are people who believe that we will come back to life, and you will be judged, many religions believe that, and you'll be judged for the things that you've done in this life. And that does raise the question about what can make it true that, for instance, dust that's reconstituted from a graveyard can be the same person as you, or an atom for atom copy of you at a certain age can be the same person as you. What is the relation that has to hold between you now and that person in you know, 2000 years time that makes them the same person as you? Because if they're not the same person as you, we lose the motivational aspect of judgment, which is the concern for your own future life and your own salvation. So the question about what makes somebody the same person, you know, for understandable reasons, was really central to what would have been, you know, for many people, perhaps the most important question in their lives, which was the question to do with eschatology and judgment. So historically, for that reason, and also in the present day for these other reasons, I think questions about what makes you a person, what makes you the same person over time, at what point you start to bear rights and so on, those questions have been central to discussions of personal identity and will continue to be central uh, to philosophical identity as we continue to discuss it in the future. All right, well, so much for the background about questions to do with persons and personal identity. Now I'll say a little bit about the background of the philosopher David Hume. The essential thing I suppose to understand about Hume is that his philosophy is deeply empiricist. And by empiricism, I mean a philosophical tradition that I guess can be traced back as far as Aristotle. We find it also, for instance, in, in people like Roger Bacon and then later in Francis Bacon, but it only really took off, I suppose, in the Western world in its full flourishing in the 17th and then the 18th century. So we start with a tradition, typically a British tradition, I would say, that begins with philosophers like Hobbes and then Locke and goes on through Berkeley, Hume, John Stuart Mill, and then our own, in our own day, philosophers like um, Bertrand Russell and A.J. Eyre are all part of that long and, and deeply important tradition in philosophy, which we can broadly call empiricist. 
And the central doctrine of empiricism, if there is one, is that all human knowledge comes from the senses. That is to say, what we know about the world around us, what we can understand about the world around us, what we can understand about ourselves and about even distant times and places, is ultimately to be gathered through our own sensory faculties. Now, that doesn't mean that we only believe in things that we see. We might have good reason to believe in things that nobody will ever see, but only in so far as those things explain or can be used to help explain or help to predict what we do observe so that we have this kind of ultimate reliance on observation as a sort of touchstone by which we can test the meaningfulness or the truth of all kinds of theories. Now, there is something deeply and inherently, I suppose, destructive about the empiricist tradition. And the reason for that is because so many of our unthinking everyday and perhaps also historically inherited categories have been built up one way or another through a superstructure that is not based on experience. So that if we think about, just to take some examples that Hume himself discussed, if we look at the everyday notion of causality, Hume in the treatise has a very long and agonized discussion of causality, um, according to which it turns out that our notion of causality is much, you know, if we look at what we can actually gather from experience, we find that that notion is much thinner than we thought. So there's a certain destructive element in Hume when it comes to causality. The same, of course, as everyone knows, can be applied towards religion. In the hands of Berkeley, the same empiricist firepower was implied, obviously not in the case of religion, but towards the notion of material substance, that again, he thought, because we, we understand things through our senses, we can't get a notion of matter as, as a sort of mind-independent substance. Um, so these are just some examples, there are many others, of the sort of moral authority, perhaps, political authority. These are all cases, I suppose, of the inherently destructive tendencies of empiricism. And I think it would probably be fair to say that when Berlin wrote that Hume was uniquely disturbing in his philosophy, part of what he must have had in mind was that it was Hume more than anyone else who saw the destructive consequences of empiricism and drew them. He didn't use that as a grounds to stand back from the empiricism, but he actually you know, drew what others would consider to be nihilistic consequences. Um, whether or not you think that those conclusions are acceptable, whether you think that's a reason to drop empiricism altogether, um, or whether you think that actually it shows that, that you know, we should stop believing a lot of things that we thought, we, we thought were, were on a firm foundation, in a way, it doesn't really matter for the appreciation of what Hume is doing. You can see that Hume is indeed, in many ways, very consistently drawing these disturbing consequences from his starting point. Now, you might say, I don't like the starting point, but if you take that starting point, it's hard to see at what point you can get off the bus, short of the, the, the desperate situation that Hume finds himself in. This desperation of that situation is actually best expressed not in the passage that you set, but the very next section, the section seven, of book one, part four of the treatise. And I would suggest that you read that if you like to see the kind of ultimately, you know, despairing, but then, you know, um, phlegmatic position that Hume takes right at the end of book one of the treatise. I won't talk about that more now, but I'd be happy to say a bit more about that and the response to it, in my own view of that response in the Q&A. All right, so, so much for the background about views about the self and then the background about the empiricism that Hume is bringing to this question. Let's now see how those two things come together. A standard view, and indeed the view that Hume begins the chapter by talking about, is about the self and about you and me, 
is one that we find probably most clearly in the work of Descartes. Um, according to Descartes, there's one thing that you can know about for certain and that you can't be deceived about and that no doubt is ever legitimate about, and that's yourself, your own self as a thinking thing. So Descartes thought that the one thing you can be certain of is your own existence, because there is a self or soul or Cartesian self, which is a kind of monad, if you like, um, which is the subject of experience and the thing that does the thinking. That's you. And Descartes said he was completely certain about that. Hume begins section six of this part of the treatise by directly attacking from his empiricist position that most secure, apparently most secure part of the Cartesian layout. What Hume says is that if we actually attend to our own experience, and by this he means our own inner experience, so not just outer experience, but the kind of thing that you can get from things like introspection, perhaps even dreaming, um, when you can attend to your own, your own mental states, your own feelings, and so on, these are all parts of experience as well. Um, what Hume writes is that, for my part, when I enter most intimately into what I call myself, I always stumble on some particular perception or other of heat or cold, light or shade, love or hatred, pain or pleasure. I never can catch myself at any time without a perception and never can observe anything but the perception. If anyone upon serious and unprejudiced reflection, he says a bit later, thinks he has a different notion of himself, I must confess I can no longer reason with him. All I can allow him is that he may be in the right as well as I and that we are essentially different in this particular. He may perhaps perceive something simple and continued, which he calls himself, though I am certain that there is no such principle in me. So the section begins with this very disturbing and hard to grasp thesis that actually what Descartes was certain of is just not there. Well, I say it's hard to grasp, but the experiment that he runs is one we could all run for ourselves. You can enter into yourself, I can enter into myself, and just think about what you do experience. You know, you might be aware of hearing the sound of me talking, for instance, you might be able to see, you know, your computer screen or some of the things around you. You might be aware of various feelings of tactile pressure or smells of the sounds around you, various things in your peripheral vision. All of those things are part of things that you're aware of. Are you aware of any additional thing, which is the you that is somehow the subject of those things? I don't mean now your body. I don't mean your eyes or your hands or any other part of your physical body. I mean a thing that somehow has or is aware of your sensations, if you like, a psychological subject. That's what was meant by the self. And that was the thing that Hume starts by attacking. And I bet, certainly if you're anything like me, you're not aware of any such thing. There is no such thing, at least none, none that's aware to experience or to introspection. Now, people might say, yeah, of course Hume says that, but you know, think about the very passage that, he's, that you quoted. You know, he uses the word I himself. He says, I never find such a thing. He says, I never catch myself at any time without a perception. I must confess that I can reason no longer with him. All I can allow him is that he's in the right as well as I. And similarly, Descartes says, I'm the one thinking, I'm the one seeing. So surely there is an I that we talk about in our language all the time, even if we're not aware of it. But of course, the right response to that is that the word I, for all that we know, just functions as a subject because a verb needs a subject. So we can say, I think, I feel, I see, I hear. But actually, the I there doesn't need to refer to anything. It's simply because if you just said see, hear, feel, think, you wouldn't be uttering a sentence. And, you know, think, see, and so on. If you think of them as intransitive verbs, they still need a subject. Um, 
Compare something like it's raining. When we say it's raining, the word it doesn't refer to anything. There's no it, there's no thing that's doing the raining. When you say it's raining, you just mean there's rain around. So similarly, when Descartes says, I'm thinking, I'm feeling, the I doesn't refer to anything that's doing those things any more than there's an I that's doing the raining. It's just, there is rain around, there is thought around. And indeed, what Descartes should have said is that the one thing that he can't doubt is not that there's an I that does the thinking, Ironically enough, that one thing he was sure of is the one thing that nobody can ever find. Not that there's an eye that does the thinking, but there is thinking going on. That's the only thing he can be sure of. So that's the, the sort of burden of Hume's basic negative destructive thesis in this section of the, uh, of the treatise. Hume's, does that, that, I mean, that destructive thesis is not without precedent. There is something similar we find in Buddhist philosophy. An example, a well-known example with which you're probably familiar is from the famous dialogues with King Melinda. So this is a work from, um, I think, the first or second century BC, or it might be a little bit later, but it, it refers to a character who lived in the second century BC. And this is an, uh, an Indian king, Melinda of Bactria, and a dialogue between him and the Indian sage Nagasena. And one of the king's questions, what he asks Nagasena is, is, you know, he greets him and calls him Nagasena. And Nagasena responds by saying, that's his name, but it's only a designation. There is no permanent individual Nagasena. This amused the king. Who is it who wears robes and takes food, he asked. If there is no Nagasena, who earns merit or demerit? Who causes karma, etc.? Nagasena would be nothing but a sound. Nagasena asked the king how he had come to his hermitage, on foot or by horseback. I came in a chariot, the king said. But what is a chariot? Is it the wheels or the axles or the reins or the frame or the seat or the pole? Or is it a combination of them? Or is it found outside those things? The king answered no to each question. Then there is no chariot, Nagasena said. Now the king acknowledged the designation that the name chariot depended on these constituent parts, but that chariot itself is a concept or a mere name. Just so, Nagasena said. Nagasena, or I, is a name for something conceptual. It's a mere name. When the constituent parts are present, we call it a chariot or call it a person. But really, there are only the constituent parts. There is no additional thing. It's just a conventional name for when those parts are connected. So it's not as though Hume's view is completely you know, unprecedented, but I should say that it struck him with perhaps unprecedented force. And some of what he goes on to say in the chapter is his sort of response to that initial destructive move in his philosophy. Let me say now a bit about Hume's positive thesis. So if we're not indeed an individual single self or soul, then what are we? And Hume's positive thesis on this point is that the self is, well, the way he puts it is the self, the mind, is nothing but a heap or collection of different perceptions united together by certain relations. It's a connected mass of perceptions, he says, which constitute a thinking being, a connected heap of perceptions is a succession of perceptions which constitute ourself or person. And then he goes on in, in the appendix to the treatise, which he writes some years later, he says, it is our several particular perceptions that compose the mind. I say, compose the mind, not belong to it. And that distinction between composition and belonging is crucial. There is no mind or thing which owns or which in some unclear sense has your sensations. You are nothing but a bundle of sensations, a bundle of 
sensory states or mental states. You might include feelings, it might include thoughts, it might include sensations, inner sensations as well as outer sensations, it might include emotions of various sorts, all of these being united in various ways. For instance, they all relate, they have causal connections to one another. When you have a certain feeling that might, when you have a certain sensation that might cause you to have certain feelings, later on it causes you to have memories of those feelings and so on. So that there are all of these different connections between your inner states, but there is no individual thing that somehow lasts through all of them. That is to say, there is no one thing that starts to exist when you started to exist and goes out of existence when you die. All there is, is a collection of uh, inner states. Now, in this respect, Hume says, and this is much of the, the content of the chapter, the self represents many other things which are, in a way, kinds of fictional entities. So if you think about the way in which we group things together and call them one thing, even though they're really you know, connected masses of other things, there are various principles that we use by which we denominate those things as one thing. So Hume describes one example he gives is the example of a commonwealth or a republic or you know, a, a, a group of people. So let's think about, for instance, the United Kingdom. The United Kingdom came into existence, I guess you could say, in 1707, so that's 300, 300 years ago. Nobody alive now in that nation was alive in 1707. So this complete change of people who constitute the United Kingdom. And yet, nevertheless, they're united in various ways. Obviously, they're united in many cases by ancestry, they're united by proximity, they're united by living in the same kind of place under the same laws. There's a great deal of overlap between them, so that, for instance, there may be nobody alive now who was alive in the year 1900, but there are plenty of people alive now who overlapped with people who were alive in the year 1900, or who overlapped with people who overlapped with people in the year 1900, and so on. So there's a kind of overlap, just as to take Wittgenstein's later metaphor, if you think about the way a rope works. In a rope, there is no one thread that runs all the way through the rope, rather it is the overlapping of different threads that constitutes the strength of the rope. So too, there is no one thing or person that's existed throughout the time that the United Kingdom has existed, but rather it's just the overlapping of lots of different individuals over time that constitutes the existence of that nation. Similarly, Hume gives a slightly different example where the principles are slightly different, and that's the example of a church. There, he says, what brings things together, the items of the bricks of a church, for instance, is not even the same materials or even overlapping materials, but that they're there for a common purpose. So he gives the example where you might have a church which falls into, I mean, the physical building of a church, which is there for a certain purpose, obviously. It falls into ruin for various reasons, and then later it's rebuilt out of completely new materials. We would still say it's the same in the same place. We would still say it's the same church because it's consecrated for the same purpose. So you can have a single thing that exists over time that can be interrupted, that can be built out of completely different materials, that can be such that none of the materials now were there in the past, and yet we would denominate it, we would call it the same thing over time. The same, Hume thinks, is true of us, that we are in that sense a kind of fiction. So that what makes it true that you are the same person now as the person who went to school 20 years ago or 30 years ago, and as the person, you know, who's going to be drawing a pension in 20 or 30 years time, is not the persistence of any one thing, according to him, but simply the overlapping of lots of different things that connect in certain ways. It's not even, of course, the persistence of your body, because the cells, you know, none of the cells in your body now are going to be the same as they are in a far enough time. Certainly none of the atoms in your body are going to be the same as the ones that constitute your body in, say, 10 or 20 years time. So neither materially nor mentally is there any one thing that persists as long as you're life does. So what makes it a single thing over time 
is simply a kind of fiction by which we happen to group those things together in useful ways. Now, there are plenty of other things to say about this. And this is this that sort of basic positive theory about the self that we find in Hume, that the self is not a simple persisting thing, that what makes you the same person over time is a kind of social or intellectual fiction that's based in the existence of certain relations between the parts of you. And that there is nothing in you now that existed a long time ago, earlier in your life, as we call it, or that will exist later in your life. Those things all have resonance today, and they're connected to all kinds of um, psychological and economic and other questions, as I said, that we raise today. Let's think, for instance, about cases about the identity, the, the unity of you as a single person at a time. You may be familiar, or you may have heard of the experiments to do with what's called commissarotomy that took place, I think, in, in, from the 50s onwards. So there were experiments where the material that connects, the nervous material that connects the two halves, hemispheres of your brain, was at least partially severed. Um, I think they thought it was some kind of treatment for epilepsy. But in any case, there was, for various reasons, they had these, these operations called commissarotomies, which severed at least partially the hemispheres. And the experimenters found that there were all kinds of weird results that happened. As you probably know, you know, your two hemispheres control different things. So for instance, you have contralateral control when it comes to eyesight. Your, you know, one hemisphere controls your right hand, the other hemisphere controls the left hand. And there was a strange lack of coordination between the behavior of the right hand and the left hand when we experiment with people who've had this sort of operation. So that for instance, you might show somebody something in, their, in the eye, in the right eye, but then because that the hemisphere that controls the right eye doesn't control writing, they couldn't control they couldn't write down what was the name of the thing that they were seeing with their right eye, for example. But they could write it down with their left hand. So that there was a strange kind of a lack of cohesion, and in some cases, even inconsistency between what their left side was doing and what their right side was doing. On the other hand, these people could do things that required coordination, like swimming and playing the piano and doing up the buttons of your shirt. So there was a difficulty in understanding, and as, as the experimenters wrote at the time, there's difficulty in understanding how many selves there are, even in that case. Now, of course, for a Humean conception of the self, there's no problem, because, of course, for Hume, you are, in any case, nothing but a more or less loose bundle of connections, you know, of parts, which may be more or less loosely united. And all that's happened in this case is that the parts that were there anyway become slightly more loosely united than they were in you or me. Similarly, I mean, this is much more speculative, but you may know about the work of Julian Jaynes, for instance, in the 70s, when he wrote about the origin of consciousness and the breakdown of the bicameral mind and his work, I've, I've got no idea how plausible it is, but it's certainly fascinating work, where he wrote about how essentially we didn't have such a thing as consciousness of ourselves until surprisingly late, you know, until I think the first millennium BC, when for various reasons the human mind changed and it was possible suddenly then for there to be enough communication between the different parts of your mind that there became such a thing as self-consciousness. What that really means is one bit of the mind is conscious of another bit of the mind. And he traces that distinction, for instance, he says we can use that to explain all kinds of things, you know, poetry, funeral um, rites, the difference between the Iliad and the Odyssey, he thinks, is, you know, illustrates the origins of consciousness in that way. Again, I'm not going to go into the details of that now, though I'd be happy to talk about it later, but the important point I want to make is that it illustrates thinking that in some ways is consonant with Hume's, which is that we have to get away from the idea of a self as a single indivisible thing, let alone a single indivisible thing that lasts throughout your life, and think of it rather as a more or less loose coalition of various items that might be at war with each other, or certainly might need 
you know, might sometimes not be in full communication with one another. So there's various different ideas about where exactly the self and consciousness came from. If you read the Dennett item, which is the secondary sort of item to go with the Hume that I mentioned, you'll see some other fascinating sort of evolutionary or quasi-evolutionary speculations as to why it might have been a good idea for such a thing as the consciousness of the self to evolve and how it might have evolved, even though, as Hume said, there is no single unitary self. Let me say a little bit finally, so that's just to, to recap what I've been talking about so far. I've said something about, first of all, the background, you know, what, the, so what thinking about the self is, why it might matter. Then I've said something about the empiricism that is Hume's own philosophical background, and uh, how he applied it in various cases, including the causation. Then I said in a little bit more detail how Hume applied his empiricist philosophy to notions of the self and the obviously destructive consequence that that had. Then I said something about the positive part of Hume's thesis and how he thinks of the self as a bundle or collection that's more or less loosely united um, in, in, at a time and across times. And then I said something about also resonances that that has with philosophical and psychological investigations and theses, both in the past, if we think about Buddhism, and in Hume's future, if we think about uh, these split brain experiments and the work of James. Let me finally say, as I promised, a little bit about the application of some of these ideas to the questions, certainly some of the questions with which I began. First of all, to do with questions about prudence and questions about your own future self. It's an interesting question and one to which, again, there's no straightforward answer why it is that human beings do care about one particular person in the future, their future selves. And the question becomes especially pointed if we think of things from Hume's perspective. Because, of course, if you really are just a sequence of overlapping mental states and there's no there's nothing alive, there's nothing in existence now that's going to be in existence in 10 years time that could possibly be you know, the object of selfish concern. Why is it that one has a special concern for that future self? That's like, you know, Sidgwick raised that question in a very pointed way. He said, if you're simply a sequence of mental states, why should one part of the sequence have any special concern for any other part of the sequence? Now, I can't pretend to answer that question, but I can perhaps say a little bit about how the Humean account might help to, to rationalise one aspect of our concern for ourselves, which is, as I said, the fact that we have diminishing levels of concern for our future selves. So you care less about yourself in 10 years' time than you do about yourself in five years' time. You care less about yourself in five years' time than you do about yourself in one year's time, and so on. And that impatience, as I said, is, is partially, though obviously only partially, one of the explanations for why you know, we have positive real interest rates. Part of the reason for this may be, and this is something that the philosopher Derek Parfit has picked up on, Part of the explanation may be that on the human perspective, of course, the reason to care less about your future self is because there's less of you around. There isn't a single you which exists from now and then goes on until your death, but rather you're a quantity or a bundle and that quantity, the quantity of you that's around now is going to diminish as time goes on. So that the person you know, who's drawing a pension in 20 or 30 or 40 years time, there's very little of you now left. If you just think, for instance, of how many of the memories, character traits, beliefs, sensations, and so on, of you 25 years ago when you were going to school are in existence now, the answer is practically none. In a sense, therefore, that person, that school child, has ceased to exist. And similarly, therefore, you will, in a sense, 
cease to exist or have a diminished existence, presently will have a highly diminished existence in 20 or 30 years' time. That, therefore, would rationalise a much diminished concern for your future or for your more distant future as compared to your near-distant future. In a similar vein, the philosopher Derek Parfit has written that this whole approach has relevance for questions to do with your attitude towards your own death. Parfit says, it's a very moving passage in his famous book, Reasons and Persons, where Parfit says that he used to think of death as something to be feared. Indeed, it was the end of his own existence. And he wanted to continue to exist. And, and um, obviously, that was something that he would lose. If you think of things from the human perspective, it's not really as simple as that. Because, of course, when you die, at least from a mental perspective, nothing is going to go out of existence that hasn't, in a sense, already gone out of existence. All the memories that you now have will go out of existence. But most of those will go out of existence long before you physically die. The you that's here now, there'll be no trace of that, or practically no trace of that, long before your physical death. And indeed, the you that was you when you were a school child has already gone out of existence. So in a sense, you, in the sense of your living body, has already suffered the kind of death that you're supposed to fear. Death is not the cessation or the ending of any one thing, any more than you know, the, the dismantling of a chariot is the ending of any one thing. It's simply things that were part of a chariot were brought together for a while, they are a chariot, and then they come apart again. So for Parfit at least, um, and here there's an interesting contrast between him and David Hume, for Parfit at least, this is a profoundly liberating discovery. And it changed his attitude towards his own death. Death for him was not something that, that meant the end of anything. Nothing comes to an end when death comes to an end. The rather, it's merely the changing of a conventional boundary. Something that had a conventional name ceases to have a conventional name, and that's it. And so there, the attitude towards death is in some ways reminiscent of, of something that you find in Wittgenstein in the Tractatus. Wittgenstein did take a humane perspective on this particular point, and Wittgenstein writes in the Tractatus that death is not an event in life, and that eternal life belongs to those who live in the present, because nothing comes to an end when you die, because there is no self that comes, starts when you start to exist and comes to an end when you cease existing. So the Humean view has, I think, profound consequences for your attitude towards your own life, not only towards your near future, you know, for as long when you're alive, but to that period of the future, which is called your death or the cessation of your existence. There are other consequences as well, some of which I'll just talk about very briefly. Um, if we think about questions to do with, for instance, abortion and euthanasia, the humane perspective, so the perspective on, on persons that I've been talking about, is profoundly psychologically based. So that the thing that is you on this approach, and this was something that Hume had in common with Locke and with Berkeley, though for Berkeley it was more for religious reasons, and with many other empiricists, though I don't think it's central necessarily to everything in the empiricist tradition, the view was that a person is a psychological entity, so that you come into existence when your psychological life begins. Now, Hume's view is inconsistent with the view, for instance, of the Catholic Church, that a soul comes into existence, because Hume didn't believe in a soul, a soul comes into existence at the point of conception. Rather, on the Humean view, it could be that the coming into existence of a person is a gradual process. So it could be that there's definitely no person at the point of conception, there definitely is a person at the point of birth, when in that process of gradual psychological complication, something actually becomes a person, you come in, the thing that we name you comes into existence, is in a way a kind of conventional question. And it's one that we might want to settle on a variety of bases, but it may be that the facts just don't settle it. 
Similarly, indeed, as your psychological life ends, we might say, you know, when you die is, is again, sort of a conventional question. This approach is completely at odds with the approach that sees you as a living human being rather than as a psychological entity. According to that other approach, you continue to exist even if your higher mental functions shut down. And according to that other approach, you were a fetus and perhaps even you existed long before you became conscious, so perhaps not that long after conception. And we can see how that might have quite profound ethical consequences when it comes and legal consequences when it comes to questions about abortion and euthanasia. I won't, I don't pretend to have a competence to pronounce on those questions, but I will say obviously they're, they're among the most important questions we face today and can't be addressed, I think, without a clear understanding of these issues about personal identity. Let me just conclude then with something I said I was going to say a little bit about this at the end, and I think I, I will now say a little bit about it, which was to contrast Hume's attitude to this part of his work, and indeed to other parts of his work, with other attitudes that you might take. If you look at section seven of book one, part four of the treatise, um, the very concluding section of, of book one, Hume says that there's a profound gap between the views that he has of these matters when he's thinking about them. So when he's doing his philosophy, what he thinks he is, what he thinks the external world is, what he thinks causality is, all of these things. There's a profound gap between his thoughts about those things then and how he thinks about these things, you know, when he's in the pub with his friends. Because when he's in the pub with his friends, he forgets about all of it and just falls in with everyday beliefs about himself, his future, his past, the external world, matter, causality, all of those things. And Hume, in the treatise, sees that falling into the, the sort of everyday life, not as a failure or as a falling short of his intellectual um, responsibilities, but rather as a kind of salvation. So for him, the point that he'd reached was, you know, driven by his empiricist principles, was kind of a point of despair. And the only hope for him, that his escape, was ultimately to go to the, friend with his, to the pub with his friends um, and forget about it. And it's a very moving chapter because that attitude is profoundly of a piece with Hume's own conception of human beings as, as weak and fallen creatures. There's a very strong conservative strand in Hume's thought. Himself not accepted. So that he himself, you know, thinks that, you know, you can do only so much philosophizing, but then in the end, if you take it too far, you know, you'll just end up going nuts or something. So the best thing to do is forget about it and go to the pub with your friends. Contrast that with Parfit's attitude. So Parfit's attitude is that philosophy does have the power to change you fundamentally. You can change your beliefs. It may be that it takes meditation or other practices, and maybe it takes more than just reading philosophy. You have to discuss it. You might have to try and live it in various ways, but it can profoundly affect in your life. And I think those are both legitimate responses. Um, but it's very interesting that Hume, and perhaps it tells us something about his personality as well, Hume took the one response and a philosopher like Parfit and other philosophers took the other response. And I think that illustrates the various things that philosophy can do and the various ways in which philosophy can affect us. And as I said, I think it's an interesting and sheds some light on Hume's character and indeed on the conservative strand in his character that he took that attitude. Of course, he didn't always take that attitude. And indeed, in some ways, his views about him, his own self, did affect his own views about his life and death towards the end of his life. One thing that wasn't on the reading, but I suggest that you look at is, um, so you all know Boswell the biographer, um, Boswell's memoir of when he visited Hume on his deathbed. 
Boswell was himself deeply disturbed by that episode because, of course, for Boswell, he was expecting, you know, maybe hoping for some kind of deathbed conversion or something, or hoping that Hume would, would sort of realize the truth of the Christian religion or somehow hope for salvation or other things at his death. And if he didn't hope for that, how could he not fear death? And he was extremely disturbed himself, Boswell was, to find that Hume, A, persisted in his atheism, his sort of rejection of Christianity, and B, nevertheless retained pretty much to the end a cheerful and uh, phlegmatic attitude towards his own death. And it's probably speculative, but it may be that that has something to do with his own reflections on this earlier discussion of the self and of personal identity, um, to which in his published works, he never in fact returned. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Dr. Ahmed. What a pleasure to hear uh, that lecture that does indeed, I think, go right to the the bedrock of many of our, certainly my assumptions about myself, such as that self uh, exists or not. There's a great number of serious questions here. I'm going to get through as many of them as we can. Please, everyone who's listening, if you'd like to send questions in, there's a Q&A box at the bottom of your screen. If you click on that, you can uh, submit a question and I'll get to as many of them as I can. Let me begin, Arif, by asking you, what would Hume say about, what does he say about the moral consequences of this argument if one develops a radical skepticism with respect to there being a self, if it is merely a bundle of perceptions, what basis would there be for any any moral responsibility? Well, Hume himself doesn't explicitly draw the conclusions that, that I've said threaten us if we take this view. But interesting, interestingly enough, so it's interesting that there's a kind of dislocation between what he says there and what he goes on to say in the ethical parts, so ethical and political parts of the treatise, which is obviously in books two and three of the treatise. Ultimately for Hume, as you know, you know, ethical principles arise or ethical thinking arises not from principles or from rules or from some thesis about what's right and what's wrong, but rather it arises from feelings and sentiments. And the basis of ethical thinking is things like the fact that you feel pain at seeing other people in pain. It's things, that's a basic fact about human beings. We're all aware of that. It's from facts like that about sentiments or feelings that our ethical conduct arises. And I think partly because of that, he probably thought that there's a limit to how much use there can be at telling, giving people ethical rules. Now, obviously, that's a way of thinking about ethics that's going to be profoundly sceptical about the effect of philosophical speculations on ethical thinking. Ultimately, he thinks ethical thinking is something that's based in our feelings and our relations to one another. But it's also at odds with the, the Kantian way of thinking about ethics, because as you know, for Kant, ethics is rooted in our behavior following certain kinds of rules. And the council reason for that is that if you're not following rules, then you're not really behaving, you're not really acting at all. You're just being pushed around by your feelings. Whereas for Hume, being pushed around by your feelings was the very essence of being a human being. You know, that's what it is to be a human being. You know, we're not angels. And ethics for human beings is a much more worldly and non, in some ways, non-philosophical thing than it is for someone like Kant. Mm. So a number of questions here on the, the nature of the bundle or the bundling here, Dr. Ahmed. Uh, John asks, can you comment on the idea of an extended self, that is, one in which your thoughts and memories as transcribed and recorded form part of a psychological process? Yeah, there is. That's, that's an excellent question. There's, um, 
there's been interest in philosophy of mind in this thesis, this sort of extended mind hypothesis for a while, where people say that things like what's in your iPhone, what's in your books, things like that, because you can access them, you know, just as you can access your memories, they constitute part of your mind. And I tend to think, I guess there's a couple of things I would say about that. One of them is sort of following on from Hume, which is much of the debate over that I sort of tend to think of as a problem of labeling. Okay, so how much of the world outside of my brain gets to be part of my mind? Well, we can call me and all my diaries and my notebooks and my iCal and all of that as my, my electronic diary as part of my mind, if you like, because it has a certain effect on the things that I do in, in the ways that my memory does. In another sense, it's not, because it's not so tightly integrated with my mind as my own, the things that are in my brain. So there's a difference of degree rather than kind. Beyond a certain point, I guess you would say, you know, the contents of Cambridge University Library are not part of my mind, even though I can access them. You know, the content what other people are thinking are not part of my mind, even though I can ask them. You know, the entirety of the literature of antiquity is not part of my mind, even though I guess I'm ultimately able to read it. At what point do we stop, you know, short of saying there's a single universal mind, which would be mad, it becomes a kind of conventional question. You can say that your mind extends beyond your brain and you can say that it doesn't. For purposes of things like responsibility, I think there'd be a point in limiting it to what's in your brain. But I would concur with Hume that that's a conventional question rather than one that's settled, so to speak, by the metaphysics of the mind. So if we dig in a little further to the bundling, one questioner asks, mm -hmm. when Hume affirms that human beings are bundles or collections of different perceptions, how is he accounting for the aggregation of perceptions into these bundles or collections or for the activity of bundling or collecting? How is it that a perception ends up in one bundle, but not in another? Yes, excellent question again. And indeed, it was a question to which Hume himself returned in a somewhat agonized way. So I only alluded to this very briefly, but Hume, when he wrote, Hume after he wrote, some years after he wrote the treatise, he wrote an appendix to the treatise in which he corrected some minor errors, but he also wrote a lengthy and extremely hard to understand discussion of this particular chapter, which showed his concerns about it and his failure to reach any kind of satisfaction on the questions which he, you know, on, on which he'd written. And one of the things he asks there is precisely the question, it seems, that the question is asking, which is, what is it that unites all of these things together in a single bundle? Because for him, the unity of a bundle consists, for instance, in the relations, the causal relations between these things. So one of them has an effect on the other. So my memory, you know, what makes an experience mine is that, you know, that experience is one that persists in my memory. So it has certain kinds of traces, which it brings about in my memory. For Hume, that's an incomplete answer, because of course, for Hume, causation itself is something that's in the mind. So that to say that one thing causes another, Hume thinks, is really reflecting our own feelings of expectation that when we see one thing, we expect the other. So causality, that relation between distinct events is not some kind of external cement between distinct events. Rather, it's simply we project, and Hume was also the, the, the inventor of this psychological notion of projection that we find in Freud and others. We project this feeling of expectation out onto the world. That's what it makes for one thing to cause another. So in a sense, it's a kind of fiction that ties together by causation these items. And then you end up with this kind of weird situation where you have no single unified mind, but you need a unified mind in order to tie together the bits of it. And so Hume didn't really reach any satisfactory conclusion on that point. Kant, as many of you I expect know, made this question the centerpiece of the most difficult and 
profound part of his critique of pure reason. So this is the section called the transcendental deduction. Um, and he discusses this thing called transcendental unity of apperception, which is something to do with the fact that indeed there is a single self that somehow ties together all the elements of the bundle. And what you know, for Kant, that can only happen if we have a conception of an objective external world. So that's the, the central nerve of the argument in the middle of the critique of pure reason is that the only way to solve Hume's problem is to believe in an external world that's bound together by external causal relations and to which, as he calls it, the categories apply. OK, so that's a very long and abstruse account of, of what's going on there. My own view for what it's worth is that we don't need that kind of very heavy duty metaphysical machinery to answer this question. We can say that what ties the elements of the bundle together will be different causal relations of one sort or another, where you can understand causality in a way that Hume perhaps doesn't. And in principle, there's no reason why, you know, something couldn't belong to more than one bundle so that I could have a pain that you're having as well, or I could have a sensation that you're having as well. Or there could be, you know, more than two people having a single sensation in the way that, for instance, we might say people who are schizophrenic or people who have these commissarotomies. Are there two people? Is there one person? It's hard to say. And Dennett has similar sorts of stories where something like that happens. So I think there need be no single answer to the question what ties together the bits of the bundle. But again, I won't pretend to have the definitive answer to that. And I think the question has hit on something very, very difficult and profound. Thank you, Dr. Ahmed. I'm going to persist with a kind of, let's call it a, a line, or maybe I could call it a thread or even a rope of questioning on this topic, because there are quite a few related, but perhaps slightly different posings of similar questions. Mark asks, even if no single fiber runs through the length of Wittgenstein's rope, no one would call it a fiction that its two ends are ends of the same rope, surely. So what justifies this move in the case of the Humean self? Well, I suppose the question of whether something's a fiction partly depends on, you know, what you need to postulate to explain what there is and to explain what you observe. And we certainly do have the threads that are tied together. And nobody would say, nobody would say that they're two ends of different ropes. We would say if they're two ends of anything, they're two ends of the same rope. That's correct. But everything the rope does and the behavior of the rope can all be explained by their behavior of the individual threads. We don't even need to mention a single rope except for the purposes of convenience. What ties together in the case of human beings, therefore, need be no more than something that we possibly, you know, that is the basis for postulating a single person. But equally, nothing is lost if we say there's lots of different people. So, for instance, supposing we said, you know, there are people who say that a person persists through from, you know, from your ancestors through to your descendants. And actually that's a single person and you're just one phase in the life of that thing. There might be others who say, you know, that there's three people or seven people in your life. You know, there's you when you're very young, you when you're youth, you when you're middle-aged and so on. It's in that famous speech by Shakespeare. Um, so we can, you know, there are all kinds of various different ways to think about that. And I guess what I'm saying is that all those are equally valid. There's no literal sense in which one of them is wrong and the other one is right. They're all more or less convenient or useful ways for dividing things up. In the case of objects like rope, there are obvious reasons why we should say that it is a single rope to do with things like the division of property, legal reasons and things like that. And those persist with the identification of newspapers, political parties, organizations, buildings, cities, and other things. For legal and other reasons, you know, we might very well want to say this is a single thing, this is two things and so on. But there is need be no underlying fact. In the case of the rope, therefore, I'd say the mere fact that there's agreement testifies only to the obvious convenience of saying that it's a single rope for the purposes that we can think of, rather than the need for there being any underlying reality behind that unity. 
What would you say, though, Arif? I mean, it, it does seem to me it's it's pushing pretty hard to say that there need be no underlying fact. I mean, if in the sense that, let's say, as you've just done, that in a way, say, you know, property and legal systems and political entities, concepts of rights and so on, things that are, let's say, very formative, formidable and foundational to our day-to-day uh, -day lives. Um, doesn't it matter in a way whether the fact what the facts are, because you know, shouldn't we, as so far as we can, build our worlds, our lives, our societies, our countries, communities, uh, to the best of our abilities on what really is to the best of what we can see? Yeah, good. So, so yeah, exactly. And and I suppose you're right that it's pushing hard. This is why it's so disturbing in some ways, because what Hume is saying is that, you know, there is no underlying reality to which those systems are responsible, so that one of them is getting it right in a way that the other one is getting it wrong. And a world in which, or a culture in which people were taught, for instance, that, you know, there is no single person who exists throughout your life, but in fact, there are several people. There might be circumstances in which you could find a culture which flourished by doing that, because the allocation of things like concern, responsibility, the keeping of contracts, all of those might make more sense for them in a world where that happens. Another world where we say, well, you know, these things, you know, persist from one generation to the next because you actually live on in your descendants. The notion of a self is a kind of shorthand for a whole bundle of things, including things like contracts, you know, which get tied up with it and which could be arranged in more convenient ways in other sorts of social settings. And what Hume is saying, and there's something I suppose even sort of proto-Foucauldian about this, what Hume is saying is that is that that's why, why it's destructive, is that there is no underlying reality to that. You know, it can be set in one way and it can be set in another, and it might be more or less convenient to do it in other ways. You know, there might be a world or a time at which, you know, we find that a blurring of the concept of the boundary of the self and a blurring of the distinction between an individual and society around him, you know, might be helpful for certain purposes. It might be useful, perhaps in times of a national crisis or something, um, or perhaps in times of different social arrangements from ours, I even feel that now, you know, in so much of the discourse that I'm exposed to, I think there's much more of an emphasis on society and groups, particular kinds of groups within that society than there is with thinking about the people as individuals. And I myself find that a somewhat disturbing development, but you know, can I point to an underlying fact which is getting wrong? That's a separate question. So whilst I totally agree with you that, you know, when we make arrangements, you know, social arrangements, we have to be responsible for the facts. What Hume is saying is that actually the basis of underlying facts is much more exiguous than you thought. So there's much more range for disagreement about this, or rather much more range for variation about this than you would have expected. So yeah, it's disturbing, yeah. Let me proceed a little further with uh, one specific aspect of the argument that you alluded, that you described for us at one point. I think your example was of the United Kingdom having you know, no particular person who was alive in 1707 is still alive. And of course, Hume gives also the example of the uh, of the church that uh, was rebuilt in different stone. And of course, we all can think of lots of yeah. examples. Similar. It's, a, it's a very, very good thing to dwell on because we can clearly recognize that there is no continuity of uh, material, let's say, in the in the state or the United Kingdom or in the in the church. And and yet we we project or we imagine that there is a 
consistent thing that is, you know, that church or the United Kingdom. Quite apart, we can come to, you know, whether those things are themselves really there or not in some ontological sense is one question. But what would Hume, what does Hume say about the, the power, let's call it, of the mind that is attributing or opposing those unifying realities? I think, I think he's going to say that, that it works differently in different cases. But one of the things that he emphasizes, particularly in that chapter, but actually throughout the book, is the susceptibility of the human mind to influences like habit, custom and habit, which he talks about a lot, and the imagination, its laziness, that is the sense of its willingness to take the path of least resistance. These are all general features of the human mind that he thinks deeply determine the ways in which we attribute things to the world around us. So just take, for instance, he, in one point of that chapter, he makes the observation that if a change is gradual, we're much less to ascribe to it a change in the identity, the thing it's a change in, than if a change is sudden. So that if you see a person, if you know a person over many years and they change bit by bit, you might say it's the same person. Whereas if they change psychologically from how they were at the first point to how they were at the second point overnight, you would say it was a different person. Um, but the change is the same. It's just in one case, it's, it's been stretched over time. In the other case, it's condensed to a small time, but it's exactly the same qualitative change it might be in the thing. So there, the reason he says that is simply because our mind has a certain kind of habit of laziness that we like to, you know, we can see changes which are small as not really interrupting the identity. We think of them as, as simply sort of incidental or, or besides the point, whereas large changes, we kind of can't help seeing them as, as important and, and we can't ignore them. So it's features like that, features that are, so to speak, natural rather than socially inculcated that Hume thinks have very often a determinative effect on the way in which we determine some things as lasting for a while. In other cases, he thinks it's going to be things like the purpose that the thing is forced. The example of the church is a good example of that. And indeed, with many other artifacts, you might say, because they exist for a certain purpose, that's why we say they persist as the same thing over time. But we wouldn't say that about human beings, we'd think, or at least not if you're an existentialist, you know, human beings don't exist for a purpose. So that can't be what makes you the same person over time. So it must be a variety of different things. And in that section of the treatise, he talks about, again, similarity, causation, um, contiguity over, uh, across time and space, those sorts of things are what he thinks denominates it the same person. And I was really generalizing from that idea to say, actually, you can, you can actually think of it in much broader terms, that it isn't just those aspects of human life that determine how we put these things together. There could be much more conventional aspects as well. But the important point is there's no underlying reality that tells you how to do it. All right, I'm going to come back to this. This is such fun, by the way, Eric. It's, uh, I'm sure our listeners are enjoying this uh, as much as I am. Uh, it's not very often we, uh, in our day-to-day -day lives, most of us get to uh, talk with a real live philosopher, if that, thing, if that thing is such a thing. It does feel a bit like we're taking a Lamborghini out for a uh, spin. So uh, thank you. Uh, uh, Jerry asks, uh, one word we did not hear in your description of Hume is consciousness. Is there a place for consciousness in what brings us to a sense of, of self. And of course, I'll note for, of course, all of our uh, listeners, uh, there's a wonderful passage in uh, Locke that was an optional reading as well, which is devoted pretty nearly entirely to consciousness. And if I'm not mistaken, Locke was writing in sort of the century prior to Hume. Uh, so uh, can you comment on uh, both on consciousness, about which we may talk for a few minutes, but also if there's any relation between Locke's argument that you had some of us look at and Hume's? Excellent. Yes. 
so first of all, on the on the issue of consciousness, you're quite right. I didn't actually mention it, but it does come up with. Well, I suppose you could think of consciousness in a couple of ways. First of all, there's consciousness in the sense of consciousness of something. So that means being aware of something. You can sort of be conscious of something that you're attending to. And then there's consciousness in the sense of being sort of conscious of yourself or having a kind of inner life or being aware of your own it's a kind of internal scanning procedure. Hume himself talks, I mean, he uses the word from time to time, but it's unclear what it consists, can consist in other than the mere presence of these states, these perceptions, as he calls them, which are kind of internal you know, events. They're, they're, they're psychological events, which are perception events, which he thinks are fleeting. And, you know, there's, there's one and then there's another and they change all the time. Every time he says you can't turn your eyes in your sockets without having a change of your conscious states. But there isn't an additional phenomenon on top of that, which is called consciousness. Dennett in the reading has a very interesting way of thinking about it, which is as a kind of internal communication. So for Dennett, here's a story as to why creatures became conscious. You could imagine that animals have brains which have various different modules, you know, that do different things. And that only don't communicate with one another very well. And it might be that at some point in life, one part of the one module in your brain wants a question answered that the other module can answer. And so there must have been a time, the first time in history, when a person spoke to themselves and they asked a question with their mouth, which was asked by one part of their brain, which the other part of the brain heard. And the other part of the brain answered it. And so there was a kind of syn a kind of communication between parts of the brain that helped them get whatever it was they wanted to get. Maybe there was a part that was devoted to, you know, that could work out spatial locations. And then there's another part that was looking for food. And one of them asked, where should I go? And the other one sort of said, oh, you should go north. Then it says, if that kind of process of communication is something that's useful, then we can imagine it could be useful for it to be internalized so that the communication doesn't happen through hearing your own voice through your ears, but rather bypassing the actual production of sound. It's simply involves communication between the parts of your brain that cause the speech and the parts of your brain that are supposed to be responding to it. And that internal process is what we call consciousness or self-awareness. And it's very reminiscent, as I suggested, of some of the things that Jane says when he talks about the breakdown of the bicameral mind, as he puts it. So those are theses that are interesting because they show how something worth calling consciousness could arise, even if you don't think there is a self to be conscious. Consciousness in that view consists simply in communication between the different parts of the brain rather than in a single thing like the warder in Bentham's panopticon who somehow sees everything in your mind and is constantly aware of it. That's not what's going on. Rather, there's a more or less intermittent process of communication between different and more or less specialized parts of the brain. And it's that process of communication that we call consciousness. Okay, so that's something. Um, it's, you know, I've only made a few superficial comments, but I guess that's one of the things that I find useful and Dennett to think about consciousness. Something else that I would say is, and the question I asked about Locke very pertinently, and of course you're right to say that Locke in some ways makes consciousness much more central to this whole question than Hume does, at least explicitly. Now Locke's discussion of this was written in the essay concerning human, essay concerning human understanding, which was um, 1690. So it's about 40 years before, so about 50 years before Hume's treatise came out, and it was considered the classic of English philosophy at the time, and of course Hume's familiar with Locke's treatment. For Locke, identity of a person consists in the persistence of memory and only memory, and the reason for that was indeed because, just as the question pointed out, for Locke consciousness was central, because for Locke, persistence of yourself meant consciousness of yourself as a continued being, 
And consciousness of yourself as a continued being required some kind of memory, even if it meant, you know, memory is a sort of awareness, direct awareness of your past self. And so for Locke, because consciousness consisted in um, required memory, that's why he made the connections of memory central to the persistence of a person. So that in effect for Locke, you are the person that you remember being. Now, Hume does discuss and objects to that, exactly that thesis, because he says, you can't remember what you were doing. Maybe you can, Stephen, but I can't remember what I was doing, you know, on the 14th of January, 2015, for example. And yet, presumably, you'd want to say that I existed then, or maybe you wouldn't. But Hume says, if you do want to say that, then you can't say that personal identity consists solely in memory, but it could nevertheless consist in sort of overlapping chains of memory. And that might be what makes you the same person, or at least what makes us conventionally call you the same person over that period of time. So Hume discussed that idea about memory, and he talks about it briefly in the treatise. But you're right, and the questioner is right to say that consciousness was something much more central in Locke's treatment than it was in, in Hume's treatment, at least explicitly. I want to stay with consciousness for a minute. I mean, it's a it's an amazing thing if you observe a an infant, for example, who you know we've all seen babies. You know, early on they look at their hands and so on, and they they don't even know that they are. So far as we can tell, anyway, they don't know that those are their hands. You know, they're not they're, they're not conscious of uh, that being part of themselves or themselves as having that as part of themselves and. What I'm trying to get at here, Arif, is that we have a kind of empirical sense of consciousness as it develops. So we can observe the development of that in, uh, say, infants as they as they grow as a, let's call it a, a kind of thing or a kind of activity, let's say. And it seems to me, as you know, no, I've done a bit of work on memory, and it, it seems to me that, uh, you know, without memory, you know, we wouldn't be capable even of recognizing ourselves in the mirror. I mean, you just, you know, what would that be, that thing that you were looking at? And so memory does appear to be part of, of course, this is not language that but Hume would expect at all, but it seems to be part necessary to precipitate the awakening of what other philosophers would call categories, you know, of categories of that organize our perceptions, that bundle things in a way that we can understand. And the thinking by which we we say that is still a church, uh, even though all of the rocks are different, or that is still the United Kingdom, the thinking that is able to to grasp those conceptual conceptual accounts of what we take to be physical realities uh, is clearly an active an, an active thing or an activity, let's call it that way. I don't know if it's right to call it a thing. It's an activity. So this leads to, to two questions, one here from a fellow named Thomas. I'm going to proceed that with, uh, with a question, though, about language, because I think this fits into the same category. You know, we're, here we are having these, uh, these exchanges with sounds, uh, that uh, we understand because they have words that have some kind of at least provisionally stable meaning. But that would be, and indeed is, indecipherable to infants because they've not developed the memories and the consciousness of the words that allows them to follow the speech. So I want to put that question about language out there, uh, and then I want to lead to this question about, from Thomas, who says, for an empiricist like Hume, it seems that the observation Hume had that his ordinary life or way of being contradicted his philosophical understanding of being should call into question his philosophical understanding. 
Why doesn't it, do you think? The salvation or escape explanation Hume gives seems to dodge the question at best. So both of these, in a way, are questions about whether it's fair to call Hume, in a certain sense, an empiricist with respect to certain aspects of our experience. Excellent. Yes, good. So I'll start with, the, with uh, your first question, which does, you know, you do put your finger on some very important things there. I guess I would say about memory and language that are both, I mean, I agree with you that memory is necessary, though it's not sufficient by itself for many of the categories by which we understand the world around us. And I also agree that language, to a degree that Hume himself didn't appreciate, I think that would be fair to say, you know, shapes our understanding of the world around us. And there, that is something which only came into the philosophical consciousness properly, I think, with, with Kant. And part of the reason for that is because Kant did pick up on something that the empiricists had got wrong, which was that they, as he put it, they sensualized understanding. So they made understanding far too much like mere sensory experience. But of course, you can be an empiricist in the sense of thinking that all understanding and knowledge comes from the senses without thinking that understanding itself has to be identified with some particular sensory state. And it was Hume's view that we can only feel, the only things that could fill the mind are actual sensory or quasi-sensory states that led to this, this, I think, failure to recognize the ways in which things like language and what you might call more broadly conceptual aspects of our life shape the way we understand reality. So there's absolutely something in that. I mean, to what extent that stops you being an empiricist, I don't know. I think you can still call yourself an empiricist in the way that someone like Quine was, you know, who thoroughly appreciated that point, but it leads to a more sophisticated understanding of how it is we understand the world around us and how, what, what shapes the world around us. I do still think the basic, you know, Hume's basic insight stands in spite of that, which is that a lot of the things that we thought were compulsory and that were given to us by reality are in fact not given to us by reality, but are rather just sort of things that we make up or impose upon reality as a result of custom and habit or as a result of the inherited features of our minds, like its laziness, for instance. On the question about um, the contradiction between the ordinary way of life, I suppose, and philosophical understanding, yeah, again, it's an excellent question. I think the reason that Hume thought that this wasn't something that called into question the philosophical understanding was because ordinary life for him, salvation, came through what he called carelessness and inattention. So the way he put it in one place, is that our only remedy is carelessness and inattention. And indeed, carelessness and inattention was the way he described himself going down the pub with his friends. So it wasn't because that aspect of life gives you a superior intellectual insight into something or tells you more about how the world really is. Rather, it's a natural mode of being for human beings in which, you know, someone who wants to live a proper life must sometimes acquiesce. So you can acquiesce in that without necessarily thinking that on its own terms, the philosophical project has made any mistakes. So that while we're in the study, so to speak, we can speak with Hume as he writes in his texts, but when we're out in the world doing things, you know, we act just like everyone else, as Hume does. So Hume himself, as you know, you know, lived a very full life. He did all kinds of things. He had a career as a diplomat, as a historian. He was probably, I would imagine, is the best-selling English author there had ever been up to his day. So he was, you know, very successful in, in more in more worldly ways as well. And part of that was because he recognised that, you know, it's not part of human nature, not part of what it is to be a human being, just to enter into the philosophical life only. But, you know, there are other things you should be doing. 
That by itself doesn't imply that there's anything wrong with the philosophical project on its own terms. So it doesn't imply that there's any intellectual defect in the philosophical argument. It simply means that you shouldn't spend all your time worrying about it, I guess. And notice, you know, that's, that's not, I think, I think Hume's approach is very sensible in many ways, but that's not Parfit's approach. Parfit had a much more, you know, if you want to call it monkish way of thinking about this, which is that you take the philosophy so seriously that you end up letting it, you know, change the way you think about your life. And who's to say that that's worse than the way Hume approached it? Thank you, Dr. Ahmed. I'm going to uh, post uh, two questions here that are uh, related in our thread. First, uh, just because it's uh, it's amusing me, and I want to welcome the skepticism. Uh, Mark comments that he doesn't think a Lamborghini is the right analogy for academic philosophy. He says maybe a Tesla is a better example because it only gets you so far. Um, well, there we go. I just want to make clear we welcome skepticism here, even towards our own activities. Yeah. Two Related questions, first from Marie-Sophie asks, if living things are bundles of things, what differs the activity of a human being versus that of an animal and the ability to even think about abstract concepts like death, potency, act, etc.? And uh, I can give you two at once. Yente says... I'm curious if this has been explored from a lens of relating to what Emmanuel Levinas talks about, how the fear of death or relationship between being and death is more about the relation to the death of others, and maybe here it's about the relation to the overlap pieces of the rope. I hope those are at least tangentially related. Over to you. Yeah, yeah, excellent. Thank you very much. So on the question about animals, it's an aspect of Hume's philosophy that I didn't directly touch upon, but is a very important part of it and might be thought of as, as part of his empiricism is this vision called naturalism. So his, his, his view was naturalistic. And naturalism means that essentially there is no sharp difference between human beings and the rest of the created universe. So that the principles by which we understand human beings are the same as the principles by which we understand animals. And so for Hume, the difference between us and animals is simply one of degree. There is no conceptual capacity, for instance, that we have that an animal couldn't have. And even if you think about things like language, for instance, there are obviously animals that have something like language. There are systems of communication or proto-communication that animals have. There are also things that come close to being, deserve being called thought that animals have. There is even some evidence, I guess, that some animals have a concept of death, but there's no reason a priori why animals shouldn't. So part of Hume's project is to show that actually we are much more like animals than you would think. And indeed, even towards the end, that passage that I mentioned about going to the pub with his friends, you know, it's, it's, it's a way of emphasising the fact that we are more like the animal kingdom than we are like angels. So that the rationalist view, someone like Leibniz, who thought of a human mind as like an angel, as, as sort of angelic, rather than as something basically governed by the same principles as govern, you know, involuntary animal life, you know, was very different from what the way Hume thought about. For Hume, the naturalism, and again, this comes from a kind of respect for empiricism in Newton. So for Hume, he was very impressed, just like the entire British intellectual world was impressed by what Newton had done in 1687. Um, he took it as a model for his approach. So that just as Newton had given simple principles that explain everything you know, it explains on the one hand the motion of the moon and the motion of Jupiter, and on the other hand why an apple falls to the ground, the same principle. So do Hume thought the same principle that explains, for instance, animal habits, the habits of children, 
all kinds of aspects of the mental and behavioral life of nature, those same principles could be applied to the human mind so that the human mind falls under principles that are universal. So the appeal of naturalism, I think, comes at least in part from the evident, you know, and very impressive universalism of theories like, like Newton's. You know, it's, you cannot overstate the impact of, of Newton's work on the, the British intellectual world in Hume's day. With, uh, that, was, that was with regard to the question, the question about naturalism. With regards to the question about Levinas and death, I think, yeah, I mean, the question was right in the sense that by thinking about the self in the way that Hume recommends, um, or in the way that Parfit recommends, the distinction between my death and the death of another person, again, becomes blurred. Because in essence, there's nothing metaphysically wrong with thinking about, you know, the person who's going to bear my name in 20 or 30 years time as another person. You know, what's going to happen to that person then or later? You know, maybe I should be concerned about it, but maybe, you know, there's nothing more selfish about being concerned about that person than there is about being concerned about any other person. So that my attitude not only towards the death, but towards the life and the fortune of that person is rather like my attitude towards another person. And indeed, if you think about questions like selfishness and altruism, it draws, it again implies a certain continuity between what you might think of as altruism, concern for other people, and what you might think of as enlightened self-interest, where enlightened self-interest means concern for your more distant self. The same principles you might think, you know, that prompt me to, you know, to not drink and smoke now and to do exercise now and to save money now, you know, for the sake of some person who is never going to, you know, who I'm not going to be or who only has, has a certain relation to me, are like the principles that prompt you to be concerned for other people. Because in both cases, the relationship between you now and the person who benefits from those activities is more or less tenuous. So I think the question for that reason does draw a valid parallel. Just going to ask a couple of final questions here to get through as many as these marvelous questions. I must thank everyone for taking the yeah. time and so thoughtfully posing these marvelous questions, not all of which I regret we can get through, but we've gotten through a good number of representative questions. Sherry says, first, great presentation. I'm a theologian and scholar of Whitehead, especially integrating his thought with Jung. Whitehead, of course, also described a non-substantial processive self, but also argued for a second type of perception through which we internalize the world in an unconscious, non-sensory, and causal way. So his self is ultimately relational, not monadic. And our personal unity comes from this historic root of occasions that makes up the self unified by a presiding ego occasion. Jung talked about the ego as a collection of images constellated around a center complex, and this person simply asks for your thoughts on that reflection. Yeah, thanks very much. Um, I think it's very interesting to bring in Whitehead and, and also Jung here. I think the idea that, that there's a processive self, that is, there's a type of perception by which we internalize the world in a, in a non-sensory or non-causal way, must have some truth in it. Because obviously there is, whilst there is the world of sort of conscious, articulable reasons, beliefs, and so on. There's also, in all of us, you know, there's a whole massive hinterland of things that are unconscious, including what you might call knowledge how, things that are prejudices that are more or less conscious. Some of these can be harmful, but some of them are very important. And without them, you know, because they work so quickly, we just couldn't get through life. You know? So there's a great deal that's, that's it's a mistake. I wouldn't say it's an essential part of the Enlightenment, but it's a myth of some aspects of Enlightenment thought to think that everything that's important in the human mental life 
is or can be or should be brought to consciousness as an explicit thesis. A lot of the time, I think prejudices, of course, should be brought to consciousness, and part of philosophy means bringing these things to consciousness. But I suppose what I'm getting at is that none of this could all be brought to consciousness at once. And we have to accept that there's a hugely important, perhaps in some ways more important part of our life that's not conscious and that is not reached or even plausibly altered through processes like argument and that are essential to life and to, to what matters about life. So the idea that there's a self that internalizes this world in this other sort of less intellectual way, I think is, is important. And again, something that Hume himself would have had a great deal of sympathy with because Hume was never, I mean, perhaps it's more an aspect of the French Enlightenment than it is of the Scottish Enlightenment, but Hume was never the type of thinker who thought that everything in human life or even everything that's important in human life could be fruitfully brought under philosophical scrutiny and discussion and criticism. I think it's a good thing to aim at always to try to do those things, but he knew that we were so complex and our lives were so you know, were so tied up with this, this sort of subconscious aspect that it would be a mistake, it would be a naive mistake to think that we could always do that. And I mean, a naive mistake connected, you know, these ideas are also connected with things like, you know, what, what Hayek calls the fatal conceit. So the idea that somehow we can have complete understanding of our society or complete understanding of ourselves in ways that don't rely on the localization of information and relying on people's habits and people's know-how and all of those things, which might not be transferable from one mind to another in an explicit way. So I think there's a definite and profound truth there, which Whitehead in his own way, you know, made explicit in ways that you don't find in Hume, but it's definitely there in Hume. On the point about the ego as a collection of images, um, I think Hume would agree that the ego can be thought of as a collection of images, but he would be dubious of the conception of a center to them. Um, I mean, all of that depends on exactly what that means. But if there's a sort of, if there's a presiding self or a presiding ego, that might be true in the sense of something that occasionally comes into existence or occasionally exerts its power. But if it means something that's always part of our life that begins when we start to exist and ceases to exist when we die, it's certainly not clear that there is such a thing or that it's fruitful to think of our lives in such terms. And examples like the ones that Dennett discusses, I think, make it clear that that is at best a simplification. One last question for you, Arif, from, uh, from Arish asks, this is adding on to a second, an earlier question, so I'm just trying to get a clean way in. Arish asks, if senses lead to perceptions which result in worthwhile knowledge, then why in the world would traditional meditation in the form of ultimate stillness be pursued as something worthwhile at all? And I would add to that, so what would Hume say about moments where we're actively trying not to perceive, but simply to think or to uh, meditate? Yeah, so for Hume, processes like that could only be understood as a different kind of sensory train or train of experience. So there, I think, there's a limitation to how Hume's resources, how far Hume's resources can describe those sorts of activities, I think. And that's indeed partly connected with what I said Kant identified as a kind of shortcoming in the empiricist, basic empiricist approach, which was to think of the mind simply as a bundle of perceptible states, whereas actually there may be processes that are conscious in the sense that you're aware of them when they're going on, but not conscious in the sense that they can be identified with any particular sensory state. Meditation, I can imagine, you know, might fall under that sort of description. None of that, I think, ultimately undermines Hume's basic thesis about the self, because, of course, even those processes, one more conscious of them, don't, couldn't be candidates for being yourself in the sense of your ego. 
But there is another sense in which those processes can be thought to take you away from yourself, which is that they take you away from the immediate stream of external perception, and in that sense, give you access to things that are things that are perhaps more enduring um, and often more important. The idea that taking yourself away from the everyday aspects of life can be fruitful and interesting, of course, is one that Hume, which Hume would have had some sympathy, but his own basic, the tenor of his character was basically that there, there must be limits to that. Um, so that, you know, Hume would have had sympathy with the person who said that it's a Tesla, not a Lamborghini, because you can only get so far with philosophy and then you get out of it and then you get into the bus and you go, you go the rest of the way to the pub. That is a great uh, moment, I think, for us to end on, uh, Arif. Uh, the uh, rigor and dispassionate engagement of your analysis today has given us a masterclass in intellectual inquiry. Thank you very, very much. Thank you, Stephen. And thank you very much to everyone who asked those terrific questions. I was only sorry I couldn't address all the rest of them. But anyone who wants to write to me, I'd be happy to answer your questions. We will look forward to having you back and to having you here in Savannah soon. Dr. Ahmed, thank you for today. Until next time. Thank you. Bye. You've been listening to the Ralston College podcast. Today's guest was Professor Arif Ahmed, a prolific philosopher, an expert on decision theory, epistemology, and the philosophy of mind, and a trenchant defender of freedom of thought and speech. For more information about Professor Ahmed's research, you can visit his faculty page, a link to which is included in the page on our website dedicated to this podcast. As background preparation for this lecture, Professor Ahmed had suggested that our listeners might read a brief selection from Book One of David Hume's Treatise of Human Nature, specifically Part Four, Section Six, and Chapter 27 of Book Two of John Locke's Essay Concerning Human Understanding. You can find these and other recommended readings on our website. The notion of the self is finally the theme of the inaugural year of Ralston College's Masters in the Humanities. We're looking forward to sharing many of these readings and lectures, many of the readings and lectures that will be part of this academic program over the months to come, as we make this new beginning, the first degree program of a new university. I'm Stephen Blackwood. Till next time. <laughs>